Should we go on to your case? Okay. This is a 67-year-old retired farm equipment salesman from South Georgia who I just saw about three and a half weeks ago for the first time. He had a long history of obesity, adult-onset diabetes, congestive heart failure, had previous stents, had hypertension, had been found in the past to have fatty liver, developed some abdominal fullness, discomfort, had a CAT scan done which showed multifocal enhancing nodules, about four scattered in right and left lobe of his liver, had an alpha protein of 4,500. He was referred to my institution again for evaluation of surgical options, but because of his general status was not felt to be a candidate. Now, he was a child pub, clearly. He had a bilirubin of 2, had an albumin of 2.5, had a proton that was twice normal, did not have a cytes or encephalopathy, had a somewhat performance status of 1 to 2, so I did not feel he was a good candidate for my trial with this phase 2 drug. Alan, what would you be thinking about? Well, so this reflects the real world of what we're facing, which is this patient doesn't, you know, when you get a clinical trial result, you always need to look at the trial eligibility and decide if the results apply to that patient. This patient wouldn't have been eligible for the SHARP or for the other trial, but I'd also be thinking, what else am I going to do for this patient? And so that's the dilemma, and I would probably tell the patient, There is a drug. We don't know what the safety profile is in a patient like you. We don't know what the efficacy is, but given the paucity of other options, I would consider serafinib with all the caveats. What dose? Well, that's a good question. So I don't know what dose, probably not the full dose. CLGB did a study. CLGB has a series of studies looking at the safety and pharmacokinetics of conventional drugs in patients with organ dysfunction. So I actually led studies with arenotecan, gemcitabine, and taxol, and now there have been other studies, and the NCI has a consortium that does these studies. And CLGB just did a study with serafinib that they presented at ASCO this year. It's number 60301. Now, the problem with studies like this is the reason for these organ dysfunctions may be extremely variable. It may not apply to a patient with HCC, so I'd be very cautious about that. So these weren't HCC patients? No. So these are all comers with cancer who have, let's say, hyperbilirubinemia, and there may be many reasons they have hyperbilirubinemia. The commonest is probably biliary tract obstruction or massive involvement of the liver. So you have to be very careful about what you do with this data. But in that study, patients with elevated bilirubins tolerated one-twelfth the dose of serafinib. So as opposed to 400 BID, they tolerated 200 every third day. And they had a lot of toxicity even at that dose. Now, most of the toxicity was worsening hyperbilirubinemia that got better when they came off of the drug. So I'm not sure what that means other than it may be a big problem to use serafinib in patients with hyperbilirubinemia. Probably I would extrapolate and make an educated guess and treat this patient with 200 BID or something like that just because of the bilirubin of 2.0. Maybe, you know, there's some speculation that serafinib alters conjugation of bilirubin, so it interferes with UGT1A1 as opposed to actually causing hepatic toxicity. So I would guess, and I might start at sort of half the dose, but I'm totally flying blind here. That would just be an educated guess. So what happened? I made the same educated guess and started him on 200 milligrams of serafinib BID and referred him to an oncologist in South Georgia near where he lived and haven't heard anything else back yet. I just want to ask, David, at your institution, what's the morbidity and mortality of the chemoembolization? 
I mean, there are people who go in actually quite healthy and for whatever reason get some bad outcomes. In this recently published meta-analysis of more than 50 trials, the mortality was 2%. And I think that's pretty global because that represented randomized control trials of, it was either TACE versus TAE, but good studies, randomized phase three data. And I think that that's probably accurate. 2% mortality, usually that's rapid liver regression. So you have to look at their cirrhosis. This last patient that was presented, if we saw this patient in our institution, I'm all in favor of serafimab outside the limit on a trial. I would not recommend shooting from the hip because we don't know. There's just no data to support it. And this patient, the liver function is marginal. The bilirubin's already two. Above three, he doesn't have ascites. So you have to handle him gently with fine K gloves. But I think we're seeing a slightly better safety toxicity profile. This is a good case for the therospheres. Internal radiation with the glass beads because there's no chemotherapy involved. And the response rates are about 30%, which is in terms of the risk-benefit ratio, the safety profile, and the fact that you only need one or two treatments. And we've seen disease stabilization for, you know, one to two years in the third of patients who will respond. So this patient with a borderline liver function, and we do this on protocol, we have a protocol for this. So I think to move the field forward and these marginal patients until we've defined the role of Nexavar or any other targeted therapy outside of established criteria, that we're probably better off serving the patient with a protocol-driven approach if they're eligible for any protocol. Yeah, I totally agree, although I'd be careful to know what's approved on phase two feasibility or safety data versus true randomized efficacy data. So chemoembolization, of course, there are two randomized studies. It's not an approved treatment per se. It's a complex treatment, and so there's a population of patients who've been identified where it appears to benefit and others where we don't know or it doesn't. Therospheres, serospheres, these are devices, and in the United States, approval of devices, the bar is entirely different than it is for therapies. So devices are approved if you say it can do something and you can do it without toxicity or acceptable toxicity, you can get a device approved. So there's absolutely no survival data with therospheres or serospheres compared to other therapies. No question that it stabilizes disease in many patients. On a protocol, I think it's perfectly appropriate to do it. But I'd be cautious when we compare efficacy data, the device data tends not to really look at hard endpoints. And that the oncologist tends to perseverate on harder endpoints. Not sure that's always the right thing to be doing, but I would just make that distinction. Getting back to this issue of dose and child's A versus B, do we have any pharmacokinetic data on that? Didn't they look at that in the phase two study? Well, because there have been so few patients with child's pub cirrhosis, the pharmacokinetic data that I've seen really does not, and there's some, suggest there is no difference, at least in metabolites. Now, it may not, the ultimate clearance, again, if there's a glucuronidation effect or other, it may be not picked up on pharmacokinetics. But what I've seen suggests there isn't much of a pharmacokinetic difference. But remember, there's pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So the drug may be handled the same, but its biological effect of its metabolites may be very different in different patients. And so that really needs to be fleshed out. And in fairness, you know, this is sort of a flurry of activity to try to digest all of this. And the company's doing their level best to figure this out. I think there's a lot of data that we'll see in the next year or two that'll probably clarify most of these questions. 
Can I ask David another question? Since we're medical oncologists, most of us medical oncologists have been listening to this. It would seem more intuitive to the medical oncologist that the smaller tumors, the one centimeters, if you're going to do a transplant, should be going to the transplant rather than wait for the biology of the disease to change somewhat. Can you explain, is there data or is there more of extrapolation than hard data as to why we're not transplanting these patients earlier? Yeah, there is some data on that. And when the MELD system was launched in 2002, there were bonus points given for both stage one and stage two. So that stage one's got 24 points and stage two got 29 points. And when they looked then a year later at the analysis that a lot of the explanted livers, remember these are tumors that are radiologically diagnosed without tissue diagnosis because biopsies are not done in this setting. And many of the stage ones, when you looked at the explanted liver, didn't even have a HCC identified in it. And that's with liver transplant pathologists slicing them every half a centimeter. So it became clear and about 25% of the population or more in that first year were then transplanted with those HCC bonus points. And what was happening is patients with medical liver disease were dying because the livers were being commandeered by these stage one hepatoma patients that were all early child days that didn't need the liver. And it became clear that they could wait. So the system was eventually backed off. You said, I'm a little confused. You say when they sliced, they were stage one, but yet when they They, sliced... Radiologically, they had a hypervascular blush, a little flash bulb on the CAT scan or MRI, but yet we couldn't find any cancer in the liver when you looked at it. And so sometimes... So they didn't have HCC. They didn't have HCC. You have the arterial portal venous shunting that look like little flash bulbs and camouflages tumor, but did improve it. How and helpful is the outfeed of protein in these cases? Do these one or two centimeter HCCs have normal outfeed proteins? Usually not helpful. Half the time, the outfeed of protein is normal, and the other half, if they have an elevation, it's this nondescript between 20 and, and 100. And they've got hepatitis or right. underlying... They, have, they all have cirrhosis or underlying. Half of them have hepatitis. So really, outfeed of protein, not helpful at all in the situation. And so the answer is that the biology of the growth of HCC is reasonably predictable. Doubling time is typically four to six months in the best studies. So we know that if we scan them every three months, they have the ability to wait. And because we don't have a closet full of organs waiting to use, we have to ration the livers and the stage ones simply don't need the liver transplant priority at that time. If they grow or progress and become greater than two centimeters, these AV shunts don't usually grow very much, a millimeter or two. But if a tumor doubles in size in a three to six month period and goes from one to two, that's a good time to activate liver transplant. I mean, one of the issues with outcomes with HCC, the Mazzaferro study, we had a study, the UCSF, the YAO criteria, which sort of broadened the Mazzaferro criteria. You have to remember when most of those patients were transplanted and when that data was published, the waiting time for liver was in the range of a few months. That was early on in the course of treating this disease. Now the waiting time on average is probably 18 months. But you could argue that patients who can survive 18 months on the transplant list, you're biologically clearly choosing the favorable patients. So I think it may be that while nobody likes the wait, it may be that you're going to be much more successful ultimately in winnowing out the patients who weren't going to benefit from transplant in the first place. That's sort of a byproduct of what is really an unfortunate delay in organ availability. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think we're seeing interesting. I think 
this is an important point because it points us back to the importance of tumor biology, that the biology of individual tumors is really critical in all of this discussion. And in a sense, what we're doing with long waiting times is selecting out for those individuals that have biology that is such that they will likely have a good outcome after transplant. You can draw different conclusions from that information in that if, for example, you knew that your patient had a two-centimeter tumor with particularly bad biology, if there's a way of telling that, for example, from a serum test, maybe that would be the patient to encourage to have a living donor liver transplant so that, in a sense, he's not taking away from the broad pool of donors that's available, but that's perhaps for him better to have a transplant within two months after knowing that with a small tumor than you know, to wait a couple more months and have a tumor that has progressed substantially. So I think as we learn more about the biology of tumors and figure out biomarkers that give us more information, hopefully we'll be able to individualize therapy better. For How patients. does a patient find a living donor? They just go through their list of relatives, basically? Yeah. Relatives or friends. It doesn't have to be related. That's a major decision there. What's major. the risk to the donor when we do that? There have been two donor deaths in the United States that have been widely advertised, one at Mount Sinai and one in Chapel Hill. Every case of this is a disaster or tragedy. A healthy donor gives half their liver and then dies as a result of the operation. Worldwide, there's been more deaths than that. There was a death in Europe and a death in Asia. And we know from non-liver, the same has happened for live donor kidney donation. Someone has a heart attack or a pulmonary embolus post-donation, so those risks are real. We tell the patients the best data that we have is one half of 1% risk of dying. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a half or one or 2%. They're going to pursue it because that may be their only option. And if you don't offer it, they'll go to a center that does. And because the odds are in their favor, 98 or 99% chance is not going to happen. But when it happens, it's a disaster, tragedy. One of the unfortunate things we're seeing, I don't know if you're seeing this too, is the industry in Shanghai where people are going to China to get transplants. And this is a tragedy because the results are, by and large, uniformly horrible. Live transplants? Well, I'm not sure how they get the donor. We don't want to go into that. We don't want to go into that. But there's some ethical issues of executed prisoners or persecuting religious groups, assassinating them or murdering them, literally, to take organs. And this this is is a speculation. And I'm on the advisory board of the Cancer Center of Singapore, where they've had a big issue with this. And there is a lot of speculation. But that is terrible. And that's one of the downsides of the internet, is that people with HCC get on the internet and they see they can go to Shanghai and, you know, for 20,000 bucks get a liver transplant, and that is disastrous. In terms of the medical outcome for the patients? Well, yes. These are patients who, by and large, are rejected here in the States. And I would argue that we are really judicious. I think this isn't arbitrary decision-making. Transplant programs are incredibly conscientious about trying to do what's right based on the evidence. And this is an industry that is, I think, really troublesome because they're doing major harm in many ways. And it's gotten some positive publicity, believe it or not, because you get the one patient who's three months out of their transplant is doing well, and there's a banner headline. And I do think that's a terrible development. 
is really disturbing. Lewis, what about the issue of referral of patients? And I'm just wondering, prior to these data that just came out with serafinib, where you know, we really didn't have very much to offer in terms of systemic therapy. Do you think that there are patients with HCC who are being managed by hepatologists and going directly to hospice without seeing an oncologist? And do you think that that's going to change? Or are we going to see more patients coming to oncologists now? I think it actually goes both ways. I think looking at it a little bit from the hepatologist's perspective, that the patients that sometimes we see that have been seen by oncologists that we might think a hepatologist or a combination of a hepatologist and a transplant program would handle differently. And I think the key really is to emphasize the need for multidisciplinary approach to these patients. It's to bring in the different specialties. And we've talked about pathology being key, oncologists, hepatologists, liver surgeons, transplant surgeons. I think it's really important to pull together a multidisciplinary team to evaluate these patients and come up with a consensus that's the best treatment for the individual patient. Very difficult to do, but I totally agree. I mean, we have very different approaches, but they're all complementary one to the other. But it's a real challenge to actually deliver on that. I mean, we try to co-manage all of our patients. Certainly with hepatitis, we co-manage with our hepatologists. But it is, you know, we have a liver tumor board at UCSF every week where we'll discuss 10 or 12 cases a week. But many of these cases, the management has already begun on the patients. And so it's very challenging but I think really important. I have one comment, Neil, and I think that's important since this will hit a large audience of community medical oncologists to re-stress that point and that when they see a patient with HCC, whether on protocol or off, it's okay for next of our treatment if they feel that it's medically indicated, but at the same token, that patient should simultaneously be referred to a liver transplant center because we would hate to miss the opportunity for a potentially curative liver transplant in the appropriate subset of patients. This HCC is a cancer disease that typifies the three disciplines on the front lines, the medical oncologist, the hepatologist, gastroenterologist, and the surgeons, the liver transplant and hepatobiliary surgeons. And the patient's hands down the best outcomes are the medical oncologist can still treat the patient, but refer to that and get a consensus from the liver tumor board. We have the identical tumor board every Wednesday afternoon. It's 12 to 15 cases a week. We don't even present the routine metastatic colorectal cancer. They're all the HCCs or cholangios or the occasional sarcomas or neuroendocrine cancers in the liver. And it doesn't matter who referred them. The nurse presents, the nurse practitioner, Mr. Smith with a 50-year-old male with a biopsy proven HCC referred from, you know, Dr. Jones. And then we decide what's the best treatment approach, transplant, resect, ablate, protocol, and then after transplant, we represent them and we'll say what adjuvant therapies, if anything, are appropriate or what protocol. And uh, I think that that is in the patient's best interest. The patients and their families don't come to this tumor board. It's just the doctors and the healthcare team. And we convey that back to the referring physician. And this is, I think, the standard of care and state-of-the-art for managing HCC and that you shouldn't shotgun it solo out in the community, but it needs to have a constant dialogue back and forth with the tertiary referral center. And, you know, in the United States, we have probably 100 liver transplant centers, most university medical centers, so there's just about one in every state. And I think that's important to give the patient that option. 
I had one quick question maybe for Alan or David. My case, which was a slow-growing, my first case, the 10 centimeter tumor was not pet-avid, and some of these are slow-growing. Do you have any experience with PET scanning? Is it usually not helpful or sometimes helpful? usually not helpful. Usually not helpful, and so much so that it's not on the approved indication, and then it's very hard. Most insurance companies will not pay. If you're working diagnosed as HCC, you can't get insurance authorization for the most part. Occasionally, patients will come with that, but for exactly that reason, that HCC, probably less than a quarter of them are FDG-avid. And also in the cirrhotic liver, there's a lot of background metabolic activity in the liver. So we did a small study that we closed after five patients. Now, maybe that a different PET imaging agent might be better, and there's some research on that, but PET is in our hands of no value.